of walking and talking or sitting and watching is the best way to do this, I think. This is a time for having a totally silent studio, isn't it? That's, there's ones where they work well. And it's, it's quite nice, a bit of dog barking. Hello all, David Oakes here again. Welcome back to another episode of Trees A Crowd. This week, I'm talking to you from summer 2019, back in Yorkshire and ultimately back bimbling along the banks of the River Ooze, because as you'll hear, Alistair Humphreys and I took a little while to find somewhere quiet enough to conduct this interview. But for a conversation about adventures and stretching the radius of roaming, what could be better than to overcome some challenges in the first place? Just a quick reminder to ask you all to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you can find the time. It really helps us get our podcast out to more people and, most importantly, without adverts. Right, and now to tell you how to take selfies on the moon and how to make the darkness of nighttime your friend. This is adventurer Alistair Humphreys and this is Trees A Crowd. In the depth of the forest an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs were bare Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. Enthused by nocturnal wildcat or willowwood cricket bat, I get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. For this episode, I was supposed to be sitting in the gardens of the Merchant Adventurers Hall, which was built in 1357, uh, the hub of an ambitious guild whose adventures through life remain to this day fueled by faith, charity and business. But we went on a different adventure and we're now sitting down by the river. Uh, I've come here to meet a modern-day adventurer, Alistair Humphreys. Alistair has walked cycled, climbed over seemingly every surface of the planet. He ran across the Sahara with a broken foot, cycled 46,000 miles around the globe, and was named one of National Geographic's Adventures of the Year in 2012. And I join him how many days into your cycle around Yorkshire? Oh, about two weeks. Okay. Yeah, just over two weeks. And it's going well? It's going brilliantly. Yeah, I'm having an absolutely fantastic journey. The sun is shining in York. I've stolen your breakfast coffee. I'm in quite a good mood. <laughs> I don't want to alienate any Yorkshire men or women listening to this, but there's this wonderful sort of gentle hum of, of Yorkshire natter, um, and it's, it's, it's so charming. My mum and dad are, uh, both live in Yorkshire. Well, my dad's from Yorkshire. They both live in Yorkshire all their life, and they would claim that they're not chatty and they don't talk and they mm. don't like people who ramble. They never stop talking. <laughs> They probably don't notice it, but they, they literally never stop. I think we're going to have to move on. OK. It's a bit too loud. Um, it's, well, that, was, that was our first sort of major Take full two. start. Take two. Come down here. Let's go on down. So, we're still recording, actually. Oh, OK. So, what, what you people can hear now is your spoky dokies. Yeah, child of the 80s, my bike is loaded up with spoky dokies. Which seems to be ooh, it's, it's a bit, bit of a swamp. Is it going to be all the way along? Uh, let's go up and around. Yeah, my spoky dokies seem to have caused more comment on this bike than anything else I've done. So we're just sitting on the banks of the River Ouse. We're in a sandwich between two fishermen. It's about quarter past eight on a Sunday morning. One fisherman looks like the traditional kind of 
fisherman you might expect a bit of a bit of a paunch not smiling rod stuck up just will catch anything not holding them and the other guys he looks like a shoreditch hipster he is exactly what i was thinking yeah. hipster fisherman it's it's for everybody and all um you fish i was reading one of your micro ventures is just go out and catch your lunch well i i fish occasionally and i really enjoy it i definitely am not a fisherman I was up in Scotland last summer staying in a bothy for a few days, uh-huh. desperately trying to catch my tea, fly fishing and complete and utter failure. <laughs> but I also had a lobster pot out and I totally failed to catch anything with that either. It's deeply frustrating. How many of your, so I've, I've been reading up on what you, your many adventures and we'll talk about them in a, in a second. But the way you started your first one was with seemingly very little experience or knowledge or comprehension or, or intelligence. <laughs> Um, and then how many of your adventures end up sort of trying for something, failing to do the primary objective, but the secondary objective being one unknown that proved to be far more enjoyable? I think the majority of my adventures have been based on willfully choosing something that I don't know how to do. Mm -hmm. So I enjoy being a beginner. Having said that, the stuff I'm doing is not brain surgery, so most of it you can kind of figure out as you go along. Sure. So I actually generally don't f- fail in the big trips I do, but often the the um, the enjoyment or the reward that I think I'm going to get at the start is not what you actually get from the end. Sure. Um, for, so for example, what I'm doing now, I'm spending a whole month cycling around Yorkshire, and the whole point of this trip is that there's not really any point. I'm just bimbling around, doing mm-hmm. all sorts of a random wiggly route, which my more motivated, driven self thinks is sometimes inefficient, wasting time. But the point of this journey is just to see whatever happens along the way. I watched one of your talks online and what I loved was you said you, it came down to the fact that you started your world trip on the cycle, cycle at 24 and then when you finished you went, well I'm 28 now. And your, your, what you seemed to take in from it was simply that time had passed <laughs> and that life is there to be filled with adventures or non-adventures or whatever it is and that it doesn't matter what route you take as long as you're doing something that on a daily basis challenges or stretches you yeah i think so i I have no idea where the end destination of my life is um but my hope is that if i choose an interesting route now and then an interesting route next week and an interesting route 10 years from now that where i end up will be an interesting worthwhile place is it nicer doing filling those days though in yorkshire where everything's relatively safe as opposed to filling it in what's that is that a swift i think it's a dipper but it seems a weird thing to... Skimming the surface of the... Having York. Just over there, actually, where we walked across the bridge, we saw a mink just sitting on a, a little post. I've spoken about it at length in another interview, so wow. I won't go to now, but like, the wildlife you see on this little stretch of, of Yorkshire is incredible. I've seen a lot of kingfishers on the canals of West Yorkshire through mm. all the dark mills. And, there they go. They are brilliant. It's that flash Literally, of blue. Yeah. Um, which is just stunning. I, there's something about them I find absolutely magical. And people have for, for, for generations, mm. I guess. My favourite thing is they're in German, they're called Eisvogel, which means ice bird. Oh, nice. Um, and I think, I might be paraphrasing, but it's because a lot of them die in the winter months. They basically just freeze to death. Oh, uh, not because they're glacial blue? No, okay. no, just because they die, like ice cubes, like Cornettos and Siberian <laughs> uh, cycle bags. Um, yeah, so I guess, in, like, what was I was asking a moment ago? Um, yeah, in terms you of about the safety of your yeah, like is it nicer to be somewhere where, I mean, you've you've run across the Sahara, you've trekked across the Arctic. 
some of the things that you've done with the experience levels that you had in the early days, it surprises me that nothing terrible happened to you. <laughs> I mean, what's the worst thing that has happened to you? Well, did it happen in Yorkshire? <laughs> well, it could. The worst thing that's going to happen on a bike trip is you're going to either get run over, which is more or less beyond your control. Mm. Um, you get run over, or you're going to get murdered. <laughs> and I think you're as likely to get murdered in York as you are in Kyrgyzstan, ish. Sure. So experience has taught me to not worry about that. And yes, yesterday morning, interestingly, I met a guy who's on an adventure of his own, an artist walking around who'd never wild camped and this was really constraining his journey because he had to be in towns we had to find official campsites and mm. it was it was getting to him to the point where he's going to quit the trip so i talked to him about wild camping and look just you're in the middle of yorkshire it's beautiful it's empty everyone's really nice to go sleep behind the hedge no one will see you and if they do they'll just natter at you for ages and bring you a cup of tea and uh, he was terrified um, but I looked on his Instagram late last night because I was feeling a little bit of guilt mm -hmm. and he was putting up things like oh here's my tent I'm so scared and to me it looked like there's a tent in a beautiful field just by the cliffs sure. in Scarborough so I think a huge amount of travel is perceived risk versus actual danger and they're two very very different things so one final thing for example then is we're scared of the dark, naturally. I think we all are scared of the dark. And often mm. when it gets dark, so if we're sitting here now, it's lovely. If it's dark, you start to think there's going to be murderers and sure. ghosts and stuff. But what I've learned from my trips is that darkness is my friend. So sure. once it's dark, I can camp pretty much anywhere on the planet. No one's going to Yeah, come You catch anything? Not yet, I've only been out half an hour. What are you trying to catch? Pike. It's a massive um, thingy you've got on it. The lure? Yeah, it's massive. Uh, Big fish in here. Are there? Yeah, I've got probably a 14 pounder the other week. 14 pound pike? So I had it by its gills and its tail was touching the deck. What, long as your leg? Wow. Um, yeah, people always get surprised, but there's some big fish in here, it's just finding them. How often do you come out? Down here, once every two weeks. Okay. You don't look like a normal fisherman. Why's that? You look a bit cool. <laughs> The cool way of fishing, you say. Oh, is it? Modern fishing. That's it. The Australian way. <laughs> nice to meet you. Good luck. Um, where were we? So, yeah, nighttime's your friend, I guess. Yeah, it's just the perception of wild places, I think, that for some reason we've started to see them as dangerous places. Maybe, you know, Bear Grill style, we have to survive mm -hmm. and beat them. But actually, they're nice and friendly and lovely and natural. Once you once you get comfortable with them. You're talk we mentioned a moment ago the guy who was camping out last night in Scarborough saw him on Instagram. Do you think that social media is the friend of the explorer, a friend of the outward bound? I, th I think, so I said I looked at this guy's Instagram last night. I only did that because I was feeling a sense of responsibility having sure. sent this guy off to camp. <laughs> I'm actually on this trip having a total media blackout okay. for the month to such an extent I'm not even listening to the ashes and no media because I want to be out here experiencing this stuff not this, not sitting in my tent at night flicking through Instagram having said that adventure stupid word is my job therefore I am posting stuff sure. to Instagram so my approach my feelings on Instagram is that as someone who's out there and doing it it's terrible if you just sit outside your tent 
looking at your Instagram mm -hmm. or you're in the woods and all you're thinking about is how can I share this and how many likes I'll get. I think that really detracts from it. On the other hand, Instagram and things like that have been so good for showing people who don't know this kind of world about this sort of world. So for example, wild swimming has become mm -hmm. a massive thing. That's huge now. And it's wonderful that so many people are going out and swimming in rivers and waterfalls and buying all these books about wild swimming and the outdoor swimming society is growing and I love that. The people who do it quite a lot are quite snooty about it. Yeah. They go, oh, why do you call it wild swimming? It's just swimming. It's what we always do. <laughs> Which might be true for you, but 99% of the population would think it quite weird to go swim in this river here. And it's only a few people who find it lovely. So I think Instagram is really, really great for getting more people into the outdoors. But is not the charm of exclusivity something that is valid? I mean, if everybody was walking across Patagonia, it would lose the charm because the, the footpaths would become overtrod, you wouldn't see any of the wildlife because there'd be hundreds of tourists everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. I love, I love being in places where there aren't anyone else. Mm -hmm. When I go staying in Bothies, I hate it if I turn up and there's someone else there. Sure. Uh, when I'm up a mountain, camping on a mountain, I hate it if someone else is there. Uh, yeah, of course, I want the wild places all to me. Yeah, definitely, it's much better like that. Sure. And it doesn't damage the footpaths, etc. That's really selfish. There's a lot of people who can benefit from the outdoors, the mental health, physical health. It's a, I feel it's something that we should all share. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it when no one's around, but I feel it's quite a selfish approach. What's your favourite encounter to date, your rant, uh, who's the most peculiar, idiosyncratic person you've met on your voyages? Oh gosh, I mean everyone's weird, that's what's wonderful about travel and I think one a great thing about travelling by bike is that you that you meet a total slice of society. So for, for example yesterday afternoon I was cycling through Dewsbury, it's quite a, it's a rough bit of West Yorkshire and I stopped outside a mosque because I really liked the way they'd done the Arabic letters in uh, steel work um, in the sort of, it looked like a 1950s job and I was taking some pictures of this and these, these kids from the terraces came up to talk to me and one little kid I thought he was Pakistani but I mean, he had a full-on broad accent he said oh I can't read this sign here and I said but don't you go to the mosque he said no I'm from Hungary so he's from over from Hungary and he's saying um, I don't want to go to London everyone in London's only got one leg and he was about six, and somehow he had this notion... Everyone in London's got one leg. So he was weird, and he was six. <laughs> so everyone's weird in their own ways. Yeah. Where did he get that one from? No idea. I mean, that pike fisherman just now, he's like full-on Mr. Hipster. Yeah. Giant tattoo of a cactus on his thigh. Spending the day sitting by the river like an old man. Trying to catch pike. That's pretty weird. We're all weird. <laughs> what we Look at us, we're sitting here talking to a microphone. microphone. So, speaking of weird people, where did you grow up? Where's home originally? I grew up in the Yorkshire Dales near Malham, mm -hmm. which is a very beautiful part of the Yorkshire Dales. So I was lucky in that it just sort of naturally infused into me to spend time playing outdoors and mucking around outside and that being my sort of default setting. I didn't really do anything very hardcore, just I was just playing out. Sure. And then Did your parents work the land? Were they They worked the land? Uh, no, my dad <laughs> was a baker. Okay. Uh, in Skipton. He had a baker in Skipton and then a chocolate shop uh, in Ilkley. So, and actually, but thinking back, my parents still live there and they, they really like it there, but they don't do anything much. They like where it is, but they never get, do outdoorsy type stuff and they mm. never did when I was growing up, really. What do they think about your outdoorsy life now? Well, I think at first they wanted, would much rather just got a proper job. 
and um, settle down to do a proper sensible job. And then of course, when I set off to cycle around the world, they were worried, which I suppose is natural, but I'm, I'm retrospectively grateful that they didn't stop me. They sure. just have let me go. And now that it's working out fine and I'm... You've got the deals and... Yeah, you know, pay, paying my taxes, they're like telling people now. Oh, this and my brother always laughs because when we're, when we're out somewhere, they always introduce. Oh, and this is my son who cycled around the world. Oh, yeah, there's my other son. <laughs> He's a teacher. <laughs> Does he accompany you on uh, adventures every now and again? My brother's not. No, he's more into cricket and golf and things. We did the uh, Sahara Marathon together, the Marathon des Sables. Oh, okay. So that was his big adventure he did. Uh, but I think he realised that that was really hot and really painful, and therefore you'd be foolish to carry on doing things like that sure. when you could go play golf. Yeah. Which there's some sense to that. There's quite a lot of sense to that. <laughs> yeah. um, so what happened? Why, why, I guess my big question is, what happened in those first sort of 20 odd years to make you just want to leave the house one day and not come back for four years? Um, not much happened, which is kind of the point, I think. It was just, I mean, I had a perfectly nice, normal upbringing. It was a bit boring I suppose and I think one of the things there were a couple of reasons that I wanted to go do a massive adventure one was I was curious to go see the world like mm -hmm. a lot of young people who want to go backpacking and things I just wanted to go and travel and explore and all that sort of positive stuff and I'd got by then through university I got quite into physical outdoor challenges where were you at uni um, so I was at Edinburgh um, and I joined the TA up there the Territorial Army um, the OTC and I, from that I really learned to love running around the hills and suffering and I realized finally <laughs> this was something I was good at was suffering and endurance because I think one of the negative sides was that I'd always been a bit mediocre at everything and I had quite a big chip on my shoulder sure. so I wanted to do something big for the first time um, so these kind of factors combined to wanting to go to a big trip and bikes are a great way to travel because they're quite cheap mm -hmm. They're slow, but not too slow. And I still think they're the best way of having a journey. Sure. So, so that led to me thinking, well, I'll just go do a big bike ride, then I'll settle down to real life. Have those skills that you did in the OTC been useful skills? The OTC was an absolutely brilliant thing. I'd nearly joined the army. There's a large part of me would have really enjoyed the army, the sort of the, the team aspect of it, the um, measured progressions so if you're good at this you get moved up yeah. what i do there's no sort of measure like that so a lot of it i liked i pretty much liked all of the army except the guns mm -hmm. so even when we were running around the hills i loved it all but the guns i just thought oh, i found that tedious um so what i learned from the OT i think in the early days it was useful because it taught me things like how to go camping basically so mm -hmm. that was quite useful but more than that it taught me about being efficient and traveling light and setting high standards for myself um, demanding a lot of myself that was I think that was more useful than anything else I mean that guy yesterday who camped for the first time if he carries on doing it first time it rains he'll get absolutely soaked sure second time it rains hopefully he'll put his tent up a bit better so it's, it's not <laughs> rocket science <laughs> so you were born I guess in the early 80s late 70s yeah do you think a child growing up today would be so inspired to travel to adventure where do you think the pressures have shifted over the years between... I was having a chat last night about what, what it is to be a millennial, um, which I don't think I technically am. I think I missed that, which I'm very happy about. I'm not even entirely sure I know what a millennial is, to be honest. I just think I've read it in The Guardian too much. Yeah. But the pressures, whether it be social media or whatever, seem to be huge. 
and the reasons for having an adventure seems to have shifted. Yeah, a lot of people now, young folk, email me saying, I want to be an adventurer. How do I get press coverage and a book deal um, and a social media following? They don't say, how do I get a visa to get from Siberia into Japan or something? So there's, a, there's often that skew. Mm-hmm. And my answer to that is always, go do a massive adventure first. Do it because you want to do a massive adventure and then see the rest of it can, can perhaps come from that. Sure. So I think, I think the difficulties of younger people today, one is just parenting has totally changed. So when I was set eight, nine, ten, I spent all my days mucking around by a fairly fast moving deep river or up quite a large hill quite a few miles away from home mm-hmm. or in the woods. And parents today, for some, for quite good reasons actually, don't often let kids do that. So I think that changes people's boundaries. There's the, um, I don't know what it's called, but the, um, the radius of how far you're allowed to roam, like the radius of roaming. I saw a really interesting thing of how that's changed from generation to generation. So mm-hmm. our grandparents were allowed 10 miles away. We were allowed six miles away. Kid today, probably 100 meters, okay. literally. So I think that's a huge thing. And then the compulsion also that everything we do, we must share with the world, really changes the approach to how I just go and muck about in the woods, I think. So I think that's changed as well. It's interesting. You'd think that it got smaller because the world has got more dangerous, but if, by all intents and purposes, the world has supposedly got more safer, whether you believe in Stephen Pinker or whoever. Yeah. Like. I, I certainly think, I don't think there are any more paedophiles today than there have ever been, for sure. sure. What is definitely more dangerous now is cycling. And a bike is the greatest gift you can give to a kid for giving them some freedom. So mm. here's a bike, go cycle to a town five miles away and buy some sweets. Um, the roads are vastly more busy now. Yeah. So that I think that is, that is a genuine change, I think. Okay, so you left your house and went cycling for four years or so. And you mentioned visas and everything else. Did you do any of that in advance or did you just do it all on the hoof as you were going around? No, I did sort some visas out along the way, but you can generally, you can only apply for a visa up to a year in advance. So I, so you couldn't plan to do it all. And also I was trying to get a balance between pragmatism and spontaneity. So when I left home, my plan was to cycle to Australia. So I got visas for Iran, I got visas for Pakistan. They were the tricky ones, but along the way, um, the September 11th attacks happened and okay. then the war started in Afghanistan so instead of going to Sydney I turned right for Africa cycled through the Middle East to Cape Town so from then on I was completely on the hoof so the rest of the rest of the four years was just get to one country get a visa for the next one get to the next country get a visa for the next one so there was a lot of admin and logistics it takes a lot of admin logistics hard work and planning to make it look like you just a bum doing on holiday sure okay there, there was one thing I, I watched online was you there was a picture of you in a sleeping out in a uh, what do you call it not a bivy bag. bag yeah and you said that this was the day that the London riots happened you just mentioned uh, that this is the day that 9-11 happened like there's something almost poetic about just being on a journey whilst these huge world changing events so social changing events occur yeah it's I find it interesting that when you're on a bike or on a trip in general, just how irrelevant the big dramas that the rest of the planet are facing when all you're worried about that day is where you're going to sleep, where you're going to eat, you're hungry, you're tired, and that sort of simplicity of removing yourself from the world. But, but then when there is a massive world event, 
like anyone, you remember where you were. So I was cycling across Greece when um, Princess Diana died, and um, yeah, I was in cycling when 9/11 happened. So, but um, I think being removed from it, and 9/11, I didn't hear about for a day or two, which seems extraordinary. Mm -hmm. um, and I quite like that. I think that's one of the reasons now where I've chosen to separate myself from the news for a month. Do you not buy newspapers, therefore? On this trip? Yeah. No. Okay. No, the only uh, the, the only thing I do is when you get petrol station. you spend a lot of time in petrol stations when you're a touring cyclist, uh, using their toilets, taking their water and buying food. Sure. And then I always read the, read the, the headlines then. So, so I know we've got a new Prime Minister. Yeah, so example. that must have happened on your journey. Yeah. I was just about to ask that. Boris must have gotten yeah. shortly after you started. Yeah, and that's really, I mean, whatever your take on... Boris or Brexit or anything, I don't think there's anyone in the country that wouldn't quite like to just turn it off and go and ride a bike for a month. Yeah. So, if you're not observing what's changing in society, what have you seen about the world that's changed on your journeys? I mean, you've been travelling now for the best part of, where are we, well, 20 years or mm. so. You must have seen shifts and change. Not Obviously, you'll see changes from country to country as developing countries emerge and etc etc and first world countries destroy themselves um, what's what do you take home from it rather than your own personal sort of things what do you take home about the world uh, there's a few different scales of it so for example I've been cycling for two weeks now and already in those two weeks I've noticed the nights drawing in and the mornings getting more dewy and colder so I'm noticing the seasons change mm -hmm. in a far more detailed way than I do when I'm just normally at home. Well you mentioned that in micro adventures about your favourite moons and mm. all the seasons shifting. Yeah well I, when I'm when I'm away on a trip I remember to look at the moon and notice it and I, and I see the sun up there and I think oh right I've got about two hours till it sets so and then I've got to find somewhere so you know I notice a lot more. In terms of the world changing it's um, one thing that's really clear is that every country at some time is lovely and friendly and a great place to cycle through and at other times it'd be about the worst place in the world so you know, I, I enjoyed cycling through Germany that would have been a terrible idea 70 years ago I loved cycling through Syria that would be a terrible idea now mm -hmm. so the capacity that perfectly nice countries have for tearing themselves apart I find intriguing I've also noticed that um, the, from having cycled around the whole world it's really given me a different perspective when you see news event so rather than being there's a war in that country I'm able to remember oh I stayed with some little family there and they were mm -hmm. nice decent normal people just like we all are so it's given me much more of a citizen of the world sure. approach like an astronaut for a uh, less intelligent people <laughs> so I've noticed that and then another thing that's been a huge change and this really shows my age is the internet so I cycled across Africa using two paper maps for the whole of Africa this trip it's only a month but it's the first time I've navigated entirely by digital and on the first day uh, my phone ran out of battery I'm like sure. oh man if I just had a paper map <laughs> but it was quite nice then because then I had to do what I used to in the olden days which was stop at a garden and say to someone excuse me can you tell me where it's so and so and mm -hmm. they direct me and they go whoa you can't cycle there that's so far <laughs> how far is it six miles four <laughs> miles yeah literally so yeah, the, the and the digital approach to my journey now versus so when I cycle around the world, I just ride every day, take a few photos, not very many, write my diary, and then about once a month, I'd write what 
nowadays we call a blog post, but mm. didn't have a name back then. So about once a month, I'd summarize it all into an article and off I go. Whereas now, there's this compulsion to feed the beast, so daily updates. So that's different, good and bad. Do you ever not have anything to say? What, to me or to the world? To the world? Yeah, for sure. But he, yeah, I, mean, I don't feel any, I don't feel duty bound to him. If nothing interesting happens, I won't say something. I don't feel I have to, have to be saying something. Um, and I, I, tr I try, I actually think I'm quite good at this. I'm not doing it for a look at me type approach. I think but there is what I've noticed on just this trip two two weeks on a bike is there's so much to say so I remembered yesterday something that happened near the start of the trip and my first thought was it must have been about a year ago but mm -hmm. no, it was only two weeks ago because just when you're traveling it's just every day so many things are new and interesting even just riding around a county like Yorkshire I so I'm I'm playing Hamlet at the moment and I I have no remember I have no recollection of what happens during the show when I get to the end even though the show was sort of, I mean, there might be a show stop or an audience member faints or you know, there's events every single day that are completely different, but I have absolutely no recollection of it because by the end of it, you're just spent and you just kind of want to have a lie down and you don't want to have to sort of decipher if there was value to your day. You just want to have experienced and just sort of to, to plateau out. But that's because you're pouring, you're f really pouring everything. You're fully focused on those three hours, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Whereas the... I find the opposite on a bike trip is that it's a chance to zoom out mm -hmm. and you're just pootling along for hours and then thinking either about how hungry you are or <laughs> the meaning of life or how you wish you'd been kinder to your granny or yeah it's a very it's very very different I think to three hours focused um a lot of what you've told me, a lot of what I've read about you, your diet seems to consist of tomato ketchup sandwiches or ice cream or coffee. Do you ever eat healthy food? <laughs> I usually eat very healthy food, actually. I think most of my diet consists of bananas. Banana sandwiches mm -hmm. fueled me around the world. Ketchup sandwiches, that was when I walked around the M25 with a friend who loves ketchup. That's not my normal thing. <laughs> I will come with you around the M25 yeah. on one condition. I can eat my, my food yeah. choices. So actually, look, let me show you my belt. Oh, that's very nice. I've got a, Baylor, a Yorkshire Baylor twine belt, which is the proof that if you eat food, not too much, mostly plants, and ride your bike a lot, then quite quickly you'll need a tighter belt. So, yeah, I eat, I eat generally really healthy. I, in my olden days, I was much poorer when I cycled around the world, so then mm -hmm. I would eat literally whatever was the cheapest food in sure. a country. Which, if you're in Africa, the cheapest food is a load of fruit and vegetables in the market. If you're in America, the cheapest fruit is probably, either it? McDonald's or even cheaper, massive loaves of white bread and a giant tub of sugar-filled peanut butter and instant noodles. Isn't that perverse? How a poorer country gives you healthier food? <laughs> organic as well wouldn't yeah. it be yeah I mean I um, cycling around the world I put on quite a lot of weight riding through North America just because I was eating the cheapest food I was on a ridiculously tight budget so I was essentially being like a really poor American and you can see why they're all enormous I, yeah, I, I discovered that in petrol stations they can get free refills of coke mm -hmm. coca-cola but in these ludicrously big they're called big gulp cups that are more than the litre I think and what you can do is you can you're allowed to free refill so because it's a load of sugar yeah my sports nutrition wasn't great in those days I just neck like a litre of coke then fill up another one off I go just to fill up as much sugar as I could oh, so I actually put on quite a lot of weight riding through America whereas most of the world cycling you get 
very fit. Is there a country that you have not enjoyed going through? I've been interested everywhere and I've enjoyed nearly everywhere. The country I found the hardest was cycling through Ethiopia. And I found Ethiopia hard because that was the areas I was going through were brutally poor, really, really, really poor, and really struggling people. And I found that hard, but I also found it hard because the kids there, for some reason, I don't know why it is, but lots of people have experienced this. When you cycle through Ethiopia, the kids are just a nightmare. They charge after you, dozens of them, mm -hmm. running, following you for miles, trying to pull stuff off your bike, yelling, you, 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 you. I don't know why that is that. You, you, you. Chucking stones at you. And um, yeah, I lost my temper more than I kind of regret some of my rants in Ethiopia. But having said that, it's a beautiful country with great food mm -hmm. and great music. The music is brilliant there. But I didn't deal with it very well. That's the one place that I was really glad to get out of. Do you find being a white Englishman useful? For language useful for appearance do you find it detrimental in some places speaking English is amazing because yeah that's the luckiest thing it, for a universal um, common ground is very useful um, I cycle around the world because I wanted to go off to far off countries and see exotic people mm -hmm. but if you cycle a long way from home you become an exotic person yourself sure and all the people in that town are just normal they all think they're normal some like a load of Samburu tribesmen in red robes with crazy earrings. They just think, oh, I'm normal. And then here comes this weird white guy with big hair. So being that exotic beast, I found a very help. It's a very helpful thing for you. You suddenly become interesting and people want to talk to you and therefore it's easier to get people to, to help you. Sure. The, the slight downside of that is not being left alone. And something I really enjoyed about getting back from cycling around the world is being anonymous once again. Um, now I'm cycling around Yorkshire, I'm just a fairly anonymous person, but having a big bike with all the stuff on makes you... Or even just this morning people yeah. have gone, is that your bike? Where are you yeah. going? Where, where yeah. have you been? It makes you immediately interesting and then leads you into conversations. And I always want to have conversations with people, but in the, in the real world, I'm rubbish at it. I always think, I'd like to talk to you and then I'm too shy and I, I don't do it. But for some reason I become a more outgoing person on the, when I'm on a journey. Did you read um, adventure books when you were younger? I didn't read any adventure books until I was uh, revising for my A-levels, okay. at which point you'll read anything, I guess, but <laughs> uh, other than the physics textbook. Yeah. So when I was revising for my A-levels, I read Ranulph Fiennes and Benedict Allen, and that was my first inkling that this sort of world of expeditions existed. And then pretty much throughout university, I just read travel and adventure and expedition books and that and that was what got me hooked was reading books and gradually moving from thinking oh that's cool to thinking oh, that's cool I wonder if I could do something like that so it yeah reading is the reason that I started doing all of this and reading's the only reason I decided to start trying to write books because I like reading them well so much of your first journey his name's completely gone out of my head who's the guy who walked through Europe during the rise of the Nazis. Oh yeah, Patrick Lee Firma. That's it, Firma. I mean, that that's, sounds to me like you. Like, a, 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 he, I think he was 18 when he left home. Didn't know really anything. Didn't have much money. I think he got posted it occasionally, sort of had pick up points and then often it wasn't there. But to have experienced the world at that time as well with no expectations 
I mean, that's an incredible sort of memoir journal. Yeah, I love I love his stories, and he yeah, that the notion of being in the in Europe just in the 1930s, this sort of stirring of undercurrents, yeah. is, was what made that really fascinating. Laurie Lee is a similar sort of era, and he walked through Spain as the civil war was brewing, and that that um, retrospectively at least makes it very interesting. Hopefully, my amblings around Yorkshire are not the uh, <laughs> <laughs> lead up to some and he was there recording the podcast as mm. Boris was placing his pawns yeah. in place but there's no, I mean, there's no doubt we live in interesting times so I oh, think that's the Chinese proverb Chinese isn't it? curse yeah. may you live in interesting times so yeah who knows in 20 years time I might look back on my trips as being before and after something but yeah it's nice, it gives you a nice like a fixed thing in my mind so for example I cycle through Syria before their war so I have all these memories of Syria, and then now you see the news, and it's an entirely different point in time. Do you think you'll ever retread that journey, recycle, pedal? So one book that I really loved, it's called uh, Jupiter's Travels by Ted Simon, who in the 70s, this was the glory days, he managed to get the Sunday Times to pay for him to motorbike around the world for three years, <laughs> sending okay. dispatches. Oh, man. So he did that, and it's a great book, Jupiter's Travels. Then years later, he went and retraced his trip, and I've often thought about it. What I call, in the interesting way to do it would be to do it in reverse, because when you cycle along, you get all these views, mm -hmm. and you kind of forget that the views that way are cool but totally different. So I've often daydreamed about it. But what I noticed in Ted Simon's sequel decades later was that he was an older, less effervescent, vibrant person than he was decades before. Mm -hmm. And a lot of places he went to, he was just disappointed seeing again. Sure. So I'm, I think I would prefer to just leave those memories as they are and go forward to new ones. One of the, um, I've got a friend called John Peelmeyer who lives in uh, upstate New York and he did it both times I've been up to see him in his house. He's always recommended which side of the train to sit on oh, for, for, the, the view. For, the, for the view, which I've always loved and sort of ad have adopted for myself is to always, if people are coming to see me, I've sort of suggested a route, not because it's the quickest, but because there's something of note that you might encounter on the way. <laughs> Um, part of these podcasts as well as recording them sort of trying to do them somewhere site specific as well so I mean we started at the Merchant Adventurers Hall yes um, we're about third location <laughs> we've got moved on a few times um, so what's what's next do you have anything lined up um, or is there something that you want to do is there a niggle that's sort of just sitting at the back of your head saying you should go somewhere cold again well I've never been to Antarctica so that was a niggle for quite a few years but actually I've I'm really, really learning to love England or Britain. Uh, I'm trying to stop flying, mm -hmm. and which is really hard for someone who loves far off exciting places. Yeah. And therefore I need to learn to love home. And ever since I started doing the micro adventures, so trying to find short, local, close to home escapes, it's changed the way that I look at Britain and it's made me be much better at finding wildness and beauty and interesting stuff close to home so I've actually really started to fall in love with Britain and quite happy to spend a lot of time exploring it for example here we're in Yorkshire I'm traveling around Yorkshire and one of the reasons for that is because I grew up here and I feel this is home and yet pretty much everything I've seen in the last two weeks I've never seen before in my life so what does the word home mean then I mean it's from where I'm sitting it sounds like you're where, where you could call home is a substantially larger place than most people could call home. <laughs> Except that on all my travels, 
and I set off on my travels partly because I didn't feel that connected to anywhere and I just wanted to be a nomad hobo beat generation out on the road vagabond that's what I thought was wonderful once you're actually out doing that I realized the importance of community and roots and mm -hmm. permanence and home and so I then I come home and when I get home I get really bored and want to go off somewhere exciting so I've always struggled a bit with the notion of home and I'm not sure whether it's where I live where I was born or where I feel my heart is so for example I live down south now and I don't like it at all <laughs> so whenever someone says to me where do you live I say oh I live blur but I'm from Yorkshire I sure. always say that you've got the caveat yeah so but now I'm cycling around Yorkshire is this home I'm I, I really love it but I don't think it is home do you need one or do you just need the sense of one I'd really like to have one I love it when I meet people who say things like I've lived in this place for 50 years and I absolutely love it. I used to look down at that and think, oh, you should go to Tajikistan. But now I just think, that's great. I would love to find one place where I'm just happy. Well, best of luck with that. <laughs> I, I spent, I mean, I've spent years on the road for work. I've, I've worked on a number of different continents and so many different countries. But fortunately, at someone else's expense, I've got to see the world but spent ages saving up to buy a flat. And then as soon as I found a flat, I fell in love and basically hardly spent any time there at all. Um, which, is, which is really annoying <laughs> because I spent a fortune doing it up and now I'm never there. Um, we, you just saw a dipper or a swallow or something like flowing across there. Do you find that your understanding of, of flora, fauna, of, of, of the natural world has expanded as you've traveled? My knowledge is poor. Especially as I did a zoology degree, okay. but found it so boring and paid no attention <laughs> at all. It's so unbelievably boring. And I, I'm quite impressed that you can make a subject like that so boring. Anyway, so I wasn't really very interested at all. But I think it's maybe I'm just getting older. I'm starting to get much more curious and notice things much, much more. And I'm learning that once you know the name of something, mm -hmm. I get a lot more pleasure out of it. So I've started to become much more interested in birds I see and the flowers and trees I've really started to love in recent years. My knowledge of what they are is pathetic but I'm really beginning to learn it and really enjoying learning it and I'm becoming increasingly fascinated in the seemingly mundane kind of edge spaces so sure. yeah I know nothing but I'm really interested in starting to learn. Did that zoology degree help at all? No it's a total <laughs> and utter waste of time. I look back with a bit of embarrassment, really, that I just mucked around, wasted time, and yeah, it was a total waste of time. I went to university just because all my friends were going. Uh -huh. What I should have done was just go ride my bike around the world and read a lot more books and get on with writing. I, I cycled this morning. There's a, there's a cycle path into Leeds, sorry, into York, called the Solar System Cycleway, and all the planets are spaced out proportionate size and proportionate distance over about seven miles. I learned more about the solar system in that seven mile bike ride than I ever learned in physics. What's your favourite fact that you just learned? Well, the sun is massive. <laughs> See, I got that in like, probably key stage one, I think. Okay, and the solar system is really big. <laughs> Do you get that? Yeah, that was so, key stage two. Well, exactly, key stage two. But, so on this thing, the um, um, Venus was about, on this route was about the size of a marble. Mm -hmm. And the sun was bigger than me. And um, Pluto was, I think, seven miles away. 
and I kind of sort of knew that but to, now to have actually ridden it and experienced it I've, that teaches me in it maybe it's just the way my brain works that taught me I will remember that far more than viscerally than key stage two <laughs> um, carbon footprint aside I spent last night not reading about you I spent it listening to a podcast about Apollo 11 and oh, the feats man, that I they love went Apollo through 11. would you do that kind of adventure yes okay oh man going to the moon the greatest adventure of all time have you seen the film Apollo 11 yes, the other day Oh my goodness me, I absolutely, I'm a total sucker from reading the right stuff, mm-hmm. um, the Mike, Michael Collins books, the man who, man who carried fire or something, yeah. uh, the Apollo 11 film, the Neil Armstrong film, I love every single thing about that moon expedition, that is proper adventure. Um, what's it called, it's called 13 minutes to, yes, have you listened to all Not that? yet, but uh, someone's told me I should It's do. divine, oh. that's what I was listening to last night, it's absolutely incredible. Do you, I mean, I said, this is, I guess, the question. A lot of what you preach as a micro-adventurer negates the need for there to be threat or danger. An adventure like going to the moon is so riddled with threat and danger and the unknown that, I mean, where, where, does, where, where does your definition of adventure lie? Because you obviously, you would do that. Do you need there to be that risk? Would you not do that? Yeah, well, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think there's, it's an interesting thing because is, is adventure going on holiday or I think the, the best equation that I've thought that I've come across for what adventure is, is adventure equals risk plus purpose hmm. um, and I really like that that just risk in itself it's a bit stupid you know you get these youths climbing giant buildings in London and all oh, those youths standing on the top taking selfies I, I despise that what they're doing a question that I always ask myself is would I do this if nobody ever found out and I find that a really important mm. question to make sure I'm doing things for the right reason not just for hubris and I'd like those guys climbing skyscrapers to ask that same question um, so that's so there's then there's full on like base jumping climbing crazy cliffs and there's been times in my life when I would, was you know I was really willing to push the limits just for that sense of Wah! But maybe I'm just getting old, or maybe I've done sufficient of that. I don't feel the need to prove whatever that is to myself hey, anymore. Even and even Neil Armstrong has been on holidays, and I'm sure they were as, as fun an adventure too as going yeah. to the moon. Maybe. Well, Neil Armstrong went on to become a maths teacher, didn't he? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, completely lacking in hubris. Um, if he'd if he'd flown to the moon today, he wouldn't have had an Instagram. He wouldn't have taken a selfie on the moon for Instagram, <laughs> and that is why I love that guy. Um, so I think adventure, for me these days, it's more about curiosity and going places that are new and challenging yourself and scaring yourself and taking risks. But the way that those risks can be different things. Mm-hmm. So for example, if, uh, if you suddenly fell ill and I had to go on stage tonight in your place, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. <laughs> Okay, first of all, that's that's not Hamlet. Oh, right. <laughs> Second of all, those dogs really disagree with that okay. idea. So the, anyway. And my understudy would be pretty upset as okay. well, I think. So if, well, you, if both those... of us went off. Okay, so I launched into my Macbeth speech in Hamlet. Is it Macbeth? <laughs> tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. It is Macbeth, yeah. yes, it is. Um, I know quite a lot of that. There you go. Not what place. Well, anyway. Well, they're doing that down in Blenheim Palace at the, the moment. The point is, if person. I had to do that, I would be absolutely terrified. That would be high up with the most terrifying thing I could think of to do uh-huh. far scarier than going to climb a big mountain and therefore 
in my mind, that's more of an adventure for me. So therefore you should do it? Therefore I should do it. That's your next book idea? Well, my previous book, My Midsummer Morning, mm-hmm. uh, I went to busk through Spain for a month. following the violin one? Yeah, playing the violin, following a Laurie Lee book. And one of the very main reasons I did it is that the idea of playing music in public terrified me and therefore I should go do it to see I, if I could do it. I've watched a few of your videos of learning to play the violin. I'm not very good. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> not on the record. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's one of those instruments that to start learning it, it sounds horrendous. Yeah. It can be one of the most beautiful instruments, but having, I'm from a family of musicians, and so mum and sister are music teachers, and I've been surrounded by scratchy, violin players for a very long time it's it's awful it's awful yeah. um did you get better <laughs> i was really right you know so to say to explain how bad i was when i came home having been performing for hours a day for a month and having more lessons i then did my grade one exam and just passed but without merit so okay. i was worse than grade one uh i sounded like a six-year-old kid and yet, I earned enough money to pay for a month of hiking through Spain. There you go. There's something I loved. One of your quotes that you used in one of your talks was uh, the Thoreau quote, simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. Mm. I love the idea of simplicity also including a Stradivarius or a piece of music. Like, the, the simplicity isn't just the lack of stuff, it's the precision of what stuff you've got. Mm. I thought that was really touching. Yeah. And there are three questions that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. A podcast that I do for my own pleasure that I don't need anyone to know about. You yeah. asked your question previously. Uh, first one, if you could go for a walk or a cycle anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Well, I'm, I'm on one in Yorkshire and I've been consistently surprised by how thrilling I've found this feeling of just having the freedom to spend a month cycling around the area I grew up I'm really genuinely very happy very thrilled and very intrigued by it so I'm absolutely loving this good if it couldn't be Yorkshire (laughs) I'd like to walk from the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole and back unsupported okay that's strong why no one's ever done it properly Um, I spent five years trying to raise money then stopped and then a friend of mine went and did it and they did the trip but they had to have one small drop of food on the way and it was an epic journey captain scott died Mm -hmm. doing it no one's ever done it so but the the i mean that would be a dream trip for me the reality is that i now i'm too old to have the anger and the ego needed to do it i just get and think i can't be bothered it's just really pretty but in theory i'd like to do that sure Amazing. Question two, should we colonise the moon? Should we colonise the moon? Yeah. Yeah, why not? But we shouldn't do it just for the reason that, oh, we've trashed this place, so let's go somewhere else, which seems to be a bit of some people's approach to colonisation. But, yeah, it'd be great to colonise the moon. But let's not trash this place. Because we... this place is much nicer than the moon. Yeah. The moon is rubbish. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to go for an hour like those guys did or whatever, but it's rubbish. This place is incredible and we, we don't care about that. Mm-hmm. There was one of the things that was on the podcast last night that stuck with me was the, the reality that we know 
even though we've never been there, we know a million times as much about the, about Mars than we did about the moon in 1969. So when they touched down on the surface, they were all just waiting to perhaps have to take up again because they didn't know whether there would be like a, a thick layer of swamp land or the crust would snap and they'd fall in sight. Like they didn't know anything. So it was like, okay, they're down. Okay, what next? Yeah. And then they just waited for a while before they then turned off some of the uh, emergency systems and then they waited a bit longer <laughs> yeah. and then they put on the suit and they, you're going to go out? I'm going to go out. It's like that bit and of... And then he was going like this, wasn't he? Yeah, it's, it's like while swimming it's going, yeah. oh God, oh, it's, it's sticky. It seems to be just dust. <laughs> yeah. It's like, and it's, there, it's like it's a bit It's not cheese. Of, yeah, and he's just there going, yeah, it's just, guys, it's just dust. Yeah. It's just a rock with some dust on it. Yep. How much did that cost? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. But yeah, it's that thing about going anywhere you don't know. Uh, going back to, to wild swimming or outdoor swimming or whatever we're supposed to call it, it is that thing about often lakes and rivers, the views that we're looking at right now, you can't see beneath the surface so that what you're entering into is the complete unknown. And even though you know you've you've prepared, you've got your swimming badges, you've, you've, you've perhaps got the right footwear on if you dare, if you're just scared, really scared. You know how to deal with a pike, should it be angry. Yeah. It's that unknown in a familiar environment which I find amazing. Present fears are less than horrible imaginings. That's beautiful. Is that a euism? No, that's uh, Macbeth. Oh, damn it! <laughs> <laughs> um, you should definitely do Macbeth. That's your next adventure. <laughs> Take a one-man show version of of Macbeth around the country. When I was cycling through Japan, I had a friend with me at the time. We had stupidly the complete works of Shakespeare with us, which weighed kilograms. And weirdly in Japan, you're allowed to sleep in station waiting rooms. And it was about minus 20 when we were there. So we would sleep in these waiting rooms in our sleeping bags. And when the commuter came, trains came through, we'd put out a hat on the ground and start doing random, just open our Shakespeare book and do it, the two of us. We never made one yen. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant though. Yeah, it's good. Were you that bad that you didn't make any money? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they love Shakespeare over there as well. Yeah. One of my, one of my favourite films is Throne of Blood, which is Kurosawa's reimagining of of Macbeth. Oh. I think it, uh, the Japanese title translates as Return to Cobweb Castle, okay. which I think is what, uh, what Shakespeare would have probably called it if he could. <laughs> anyway, that, so we went from uh, yeah from a, to a Japanese waiting room from being on the moon. Uh, question number three. Uh, final question, if you could bring back uh, a species from extinction, what would it be? I don't really know many species that have gone ex extinct, so I can't really give a that very zoology measure. degree was yeah. well then. I would love, love, love to see a Argentinosaurus. You know, okay. there's whopping great massive dinosaurs. It's walking along there, yeah, I'd love to see a dinosaur. They are incredible, aren't they? Yeah, a, a dinosaur. Not a scary one, just a massive one. Like just massive. a huge dinosaur. Maybe your next adventure through time then. Yeah, oh gosh, I would love to do that. Where would you go? I'd stay exactly where I am right this second and I'd see everyone who'd walked past here all the way back to Roman soldiers. I often think that when I'm cycling or walking I just or sitting in an old pub, I just want to see who has been here walking this path. In York especially, that would be incredible. Whether yeah. it be Vikings or Romans yeah. or or even just us. Mm. I was reading the other day about a, a party that Stephen Hawkins threw, had the best champagne, and, and didn't publicise it until after the event, because it was, it was for time travellers. <laughs> and nobody came. And that is one of his main reasons why he doesn't believe that time travel is possible. That's, he's such a dude, wasn't Isn't he? he? Yeah. Legendary.
Um, thank you so very much for talking to me. If people want to know more about you, you're on Instagram. Your handle is Al underscore Humphreys. You're on Twitter, and your the handle same, is yeah, the same. same and all and the your other books things. are available through your website, which is alistumphreys.com. Wonderful. It's thank just, you. It's been lovely. Nice sitting out watching the day start. Very nice. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. There's something kind of wonderful about releasing these episodes a little while after recording them. I found that glorious to be transported back to last summer to that riverbank with Al. So thank you, Alistair, for taking the time to talk to me. And thank you, Alistair, for being so full of wisdom upon a repeat listen. But if you're not sated, what Alistair didn't say in that interview is that whilst he was cycling around Yorkshire, he was also making a podcast with the people he met on his journey. So shortly after I pressed stop on my recording, Al whipped out his recording equipment and pointed it in my direction. So from tomorrow, I believe, if you head to his podcast, Living Adventurously, you can hear the tables turning and me becoming the interviewee for a change. Right, that was this fortnight's episode. We'll be back again in another two weeks with an episode from Dublin, so keep an eye open for that one. Please subscribe, leave us a review if you've enjoyed this episode, and I will see you again next time. Keep well. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh